I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. In the country of the blind, where the writer Andrew Leland is guiding our tour, they do things differently. They have their own identity riddles, their network of heroes and not-so-heroes. They have their own censors of beauty and of sexual interest. They have their own sore spots when sighted people speak of their disability. They have their own Facebook pages and their own panic attacks, their own wacky humor as well. They have their own Hall of Fame, back to Homer, among the ancients. They have a sense of their modern selves as strivers, even adventurers, more than victims. They argue fine points among themselves, like whether Lady Justice in front of the courthouse is or ought to be blind, and whether a male gaze persists among men who cannot see. Andrew Leland, thank you for opening these doors in your book and in person. Would you give us your opening lines from The Country of the Blind? Yes. Thank you, Chris. Introduction. The end begins. I'm going blind as I write this. It feels less dramatic than it sounds. The words aren't disappearing as I type. I'm sitting comfortably in the sunroom. The sun is rising like it's supposed to. I can plainly see Lily sitting next to me, reading in her striped pajamas. The visible world is disappearing, but it's not in a hurry. It feels at once catastrophic and commonplace, like reading an article about civilization's imminent collapse from the climate crisis, then setting the article down and going for a pleasant bike ride through a mild spring morning. As, as luck would have it, we're just six city blocks from the Massachusetts Ironier Infirmary, hmm. which you know well. It's funny. In the book, I actually have a scene where I walk from Mass Ioneer to South Station. Yeah. And it's winter, and I've just gotten complicated news from my doctor, where when I was originally diagnosed, they told me it'll be a very gradual decline in vision until middle age when it'll fall off a cliff. And that's what I've been carrying around for, for 20 years. And then suddenly, one afternoon, they said, actually, RP doesn't work like that. It's the rate of decline stays constant. And so you're probably not going to just go off a cliff suddenly. The, the slow decline will just continue for you know, for, for years to come. And, and I have more to say about that. It's, it is more well, that complicated than that. Wonderful news. It was great news. And so I was walking through, walking through Boston on my way back to the train station to I go see home. I you on West Cedar Street, I'll bet. Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, and then I come upon Boston Common and I have no idea there's a flight of stairs there. You know, and, I'm, and as I'm walking, I'm thinking like, I don't even need my cane, right? Like they just told me blindness is not even part of your life. And then of course the cane catches the staircase. And I think, Oh, right. Like, I am actually still legally blind. I am still going blind. I don't know. It messed with my head. And and yet at the same time, that news allowed me to enjoy my vision that I do have for the first time in a long time. All to say that this morning on my walk here, it was baking hot as opposed to icy cold. And I had already written the book, whereas when I was taking that first walk in the other direction, mm -hmm. I was just at the beginning of writing it. And... I was, there was definitely a moment of retrospection about the distance I've come between those two moments. And my vision has changed in between those two points, but not radically. You know, it's, it is this continued, as my doctor predicted, just sort of drip by drip decline. But my attitude and my perspective on blindness has changed quite radically in, in those intervening moments. Attitude, perspective. What about anxiety on a scale of one to ten? Or adventure? Or are you... Are you thinking journalistically about your radio chops or mine? 
I would say that anxiety is variable, you know, and I think another thing I did on the walk this morning that I do constantly is imagine a future. You know, I was listening to my phone. My phone speaks, as all iPhones are capable of doing, you know, so anything that you can see on your phone screen, more or less, I can hear it, so I don't have to strain my eyes, or in some cases, you know, things that I I wouldn't otherwise be able to see. You know, so it was saying, in 250 feet, Chestnut Street is approaching. You know, and I was trying to imagine navigating that way without the luxury of the central, the couple of degrees of central vision that I do have now. That speculation does cause anxiety because I've done sleep shade training where I have practiced traveling in a city without any vision. And it's a hell of a lot harder than it is with a few degrees I've got. We're going to talk about that all the more fun because there's a postscript in The New Yorker that wasn't in the book about going to the Colorado Center for the Blind and doing that incredible full immersion among blind people. But Mm -hmm. then these so-called independent drops where they take you and deposit you, you don't know exactly where, but it's your job to get back by yourself. It's it's a a hair-raising scene. Among the many wonders of your book, Andrew, is the general picture of blind people as active protagonists in their own original stories. So many individual drives toward self-definition, self-reliance, even in the old Emersonian sense. My mission here is is to get inside your head and just to let people hear what's going on. Hmm. The idea of self-definition is so important around this subject of blindness because historically, but also today, blind people, the general perception of them, of us, is that there is no real agency, that it's like a, a time bomb, a disaster waiting to happen. And you can see this. And in that you're the, living in darkness, too. Living in darkness, which is also a fiction. Yeah, largely. And, uh, but, but the idea of like, like a, a kind of, I would say, a universal experience of a blind person in public. And I, and I would say if it hasn't happened to you as a blind person yet, it will. If you spend enough time in public with a white cane is somebody grabbing your arm and saying, oh, streets, lights green, let's go. And just, you know, maybe you weren't, maybe you were waiting for a cab. Maybe you were smelling the, the, the city breeze. It doesn't matter. They say, oh, blind person, no idea where they are. Let me, let me get them to where they're going. And you see that in, in a million ways of this sort of condescending paternalistic default assumption that the blind person is lost, the blind person is in the dark, in the metaphorical sense, right? Like, no idea what's going on. And that's just not the case. You know, there certainly are lost blind people, as there are lost sighted people. uh, But I think it felt so important to show the reality of blindness, which is human, insofar as it includes all of those conditions, lostness, foundness, curiosity, fear, happiness, etc. And I think that it's shocking to me still the degree to which the public, you know, if I can generalize about a public, but I think it is generalizable that they just have no imagination about an interiority of blindness that could be anything other than lost and scared. Yeah, let's go there. There's a brilliant quick story in the book that takes us way inside. At the birth of your son, tiny and beautiful and screaming, you write, the nurse asked if if dad wanted to cut the umbilical cord. It seemed, it seemed, of course, like a terrible idea, handing surgical scissors to a part-blind guy and asking him to use them on the most tender creature on earth. 
You declined the assignment, and the, but the nurse persisted. That's your job, Dad. And you say they showed you the stretch of cord between two clamps, and then you inhaled and, and cut the cord. You write, his tiny red face filled my central vision. I could see nothing else. Yeah, it's funny to hear that story back about Oscar's birth. Um, now, even though I have much less vision than I did then, I don't think I would have had the same hesitation to cut the cord in, in the same way. And so it's, what I hear when, when you read that back to me is this older version of myself that feels like, oh, how am I going to pull this off with the level of vision I have? Are you now thinking, what was I worried about? Or? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What should we know about RP, retinitis pigmentosa, the this, this slow narrowing of your tunnel vision? It is one of the most common forms of blindness. So, you know, chances are good that if you've got a room full of blind people, there's going to be a bunch of us. It is a variable condition in terms of the rate of decay of the of the retina. So there are there are folks with RP who are totally blind by the time they turn 18. And I've seen online claims of folks with RP who still drive into their 80s. You know, I don't know how safe that is, but uh, that's happening too. But, but the sort of classic progression, which I think is about what I've got, is as a teenager, you notice night blindness and a lot more difficulty, you know, finding your seat at the movie theater or going through the woods at night and then your friends. And then it's this gradual decline into adulthood. And, and the way the retina works is there's rods and cones, the two types of cells in the retina. And the rods die first with RP. And then eventually the retina becomes the sort of toxic wasteland and the cones go too. But the effect of the rods going first is that your peripheral vision goes because that's what rods do and then also night vision which is what the rods also give you so it's this really it's you know just imagine over decades a narrowing aperture and then as that happens things get sort of more complicated in the center as well until finally the center doesn't hold either it's only more recently that blindness has kind of caught up with me that i've had a more emotional reckoning with it because as a teenager i had that kind of invincibility that many teenagers have and it just felt like it was like somebody told me someday you're going to die or someday you're going to have kids. So, you know, it's like, okay, that's fine. But that has nothing to do with where I am in my life right now. I didn't think, oh, I've got to think about my career now and when the Air Force is out. You know, there was none, nothing like that. It was just like, this is a surreal thing that I have decades to process. And I gave myself decades to process it. You write that you, you still feel a conflict in yourself about the value of disability, the beauty and power you say you found in blindness, and the primary sense of loss and exclusion. You write, how can something that estranges us from so much of the world also bring us closer to it? That idea that, that, that you just brought up, that idea that the thing that is the most sort of limiting or alienating is also the source of growth and joy is a, is a kind of fundamental aspect of being human. It's sort of required for our survival because there is an unending stream of limitation and the opposite of what your best laid plans are and suffering right. and so forth. And I don't think it's just dumping high fructose corn syrup into a disaster to say that there actually is real wisdom that you can find in those painful experiences. I think it's like the job of, of being a human to, to find it. Yeah, that argument never quite ends in your book. Um, your friend Will Butler, a journalist, describes the onset of his own blindness as the beginning of wisdom. 
the opening of intellectual doors, he said. You say there is pathos in vision loss, but it's the grand, refined pathos of King Lear, who says to the blind Duke of Gloucester, I love this part, Lear says, no eyes in your head, yet you see how this world goes. And Gloucester's reply is just perfection. He says, I see it feelingly. I just, I'm just reminding myself this morning that Charles Dickens came to the United States. He wrote a book called American Notes, and he went to the Perkins School of the Blind. Children to the right and left of him, productive, happy, engaged. It's a huge subject. That encounter where he met Laura Bridgman, the, exactly. the first deaf-blind person to, to receive an education, I think, although that's maybe not, I don't think that's an f- exact fact. Um, but but certainly the most well-known, right. a generation before Helen Keller, you know, Dickens in some ways really like laid the groundwork for Helen Keller's celebrity, which altered the global consciousness of disability and she profoundly. Heard, she heard about the Perkins School from Dickens' American Notes. Exactly. Her mother read, it's all read it. Yep. Jump ahead to what's in The New Yorker, this month about you going back to the Colorado Center for the Blind and taking their their training course, a rough, tough course it was indeed. Is there anybody you can just walk us through that independent drop? Absolutely, yeah. So one of the main blindness skills is affectionately known as O&M or orientation and mobility. It's basically cane training, how to navigate the world with a white cane. And the way the Colorado Center for the Blind and the other NFB centers, um, there are three of them around the country, work uh, is it's sleep shade training. So you wear, you know, these commercially available sleep masks, basically the big soft shell foam uh, around your eyes can see absolutely nothing wearing them. And then from eight to four every day, five days a week, you're, you're, you're learning blindness skills. And one of the classes that you take, it's a little bit like college, like you've got Braille at 9 a.m. and then you've got cooking at 11 and then travel, they, travel class they call it. And then the, the final test for O&M for travel is this independent drop. And they you get in a van with one of the handful of sighted employees uh, behind the wheel and they, they drive in circles. You have no idea where in Denver you're being dropped. And, and you know, depending on, on your skill level, they'll, they'll drop you in a more or less difficult place. And they say, okay, farewell. And you're on your own. And, you know, and I have to emphasize, there's a lot of, there's nine months of training building up to this. But you're apprehensive and you ask your instructor, am I ready for this? And he says, well, I thought you weren't, frankly. And two others outvoted him. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that came as a surprise and not, not, not an encouraging moment. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I tried it out. And, you know, I learned, the, the one thing everybody says about the independent drop is you got to find a bus stop. Because you don't know where you are, but they've, you've been learning the Denver public transit system for nine months. Mm. And you can ask one person one question is the rule. And you don't have a smartphone. They give you a flip phone that in case of emergency, you just flip open and press the call button. And it's got the center's number pre-programmed mm. in mm. there. So, you know, the first thing you do is find a bus stop. And you're almost always dropped in a residential neighborhood. So the first thing you do is listen for traffic because you know that there's not going to be a bus stop on a residential street. So you kind of want to try to find a busier street. So I, I knew to do that. And I felt the sun on my face and I knew it was morning and the sun just, I could feel it beating directly down on me. So I knew I was facing east. So I, I remembered that to sort of try to orient myself, at least like have a starting place. And I just set off and 
you know, I had practiced street crossings dozens and dozens of times by that point. So I got to my first corner and I listened and I heard off to my left that there was some traffic. So I said, okay, let's go left. And then it's tricky sometimes to tell the difference between a corner and a driveway because they both have that sort of dip. And so I, I, I came to my first one and I was very apprehensive. And so I, I stood way longer than I normally would have. And then a car kind of slowed down and a guy was like, do you drop something, buddy? Because I was just taking my cane and just moving it behind me. And, and one thing I've learned is I think instinctually, if if you stop and you're like, wait, wait where did I go? If you're sighted, you know, you, 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 you might turn completely around and say, oh, right. Okay, there's the bridge I just crossed. But when you're blind you don't want to do that because you just completely disorient yourself. So you really have to learn. I really had to learn to keep my feet rooted in place. And so I would just, my feet were rooted, but I would swing my cane all over to try to feel, okay, is there gravel? What's going on? And the guy was like, did you drop something, buddy? And I, and I was like, no, I'm just, just exploring, you know, and then I kept going and I found a busier street, walked along that for a long time, found no bus stops. And, you know, I write in that piece that you, you, we were trained to think like urban planners, because if you think about like, how am I going to find a bus stop? Well, is the bus stop going to be on the curb side or is it going to be like beyond the grass line? And it kind of depends on the width of the sidewalk. If you think about downtown Boston where the sidewalks are, you know, 15 feet wide. Yeah, there might be room for a bus shelter on the uh, on the building side. But when a, when a sidewalk is narrow, that would block the entire sidewalk. So I had to sort of figure out, OK, which side am I even feeling on? Mm. You know, you run your cane up a pole and you can feel that sort of telltale flag metal metal flag shape of a bus stop. Long story short, I made my way down this street, crossed a very busy street, which was which was harrowing, sort of cheated when I, a guy saw me standing for, you know, probably five minutes at this corner thinking I was utterly lost. And I was, but really what I was doing was studying the traffic pattern and thinking, okay, so clearly this is a four-way intersection that has a light and there is a turn signal, you know, but it took me a while to parse that. Mm. And so that's all I was doing. But he came out and just sounded mournful, like, buddy, like, what can I do to help you? And I said, no, I'm good. But then I cheated a little and was like, I'm just looking for a bus stop, you know, which didn't count as my one question. But still, I knew that he would say, oh, there's one right down there. And so that was helpful. Found the bus shelter. And then my one question that I really used was for the bus driver. And I said, how do I get to downtown Littleton station? And then once I got off at downtown Littleton, that was, you know, from the downtown Littleton station to the center, I'd done that walk, um, you know, probably a hundred times at that point. So I knew I was on rails by that point and yep, made it back. And you know, they, they announced over the intercom that you've made it back when you do. And I could hear cheers go up from all the We're different rooms. We're cheering, Andrew. Yeah. We're cheering. Um, and I got to tell you, Chris, like now when I'm walking through Boston common and doing this speculative thing where I'm like, how am I going to do this someday when I have less vision or no vision, nothing puts confidence in my step. Like the memory of that trip. I mean, you know, it's not going to be easy, but if I if I could do that, why couldn't I plan a route from South Station to Radio Open Source HQ and and get it done? It might take me an hour longer than it would, or or you know I might get a little turned around and it might take me two hours longer. But I have all the confidence in the world that I could make that trip with no vision. I get the impression almost that physical beauty means more to blind people than it does to to others. Maybe you could. Just tell Ron Brown's story about how he brought his brother along. He was blind. Yeah. And it was his first date with a woman yeah. who was also blind, yes. who became his wife. Yes. Tell that one. Yeah. So I was at a, a state, Massachusetts state convention for the National Federation of the Blind. And Ron Brown is a, a national, uh, he's an NFB leader. And so he was there giving his banquet speech and and told this story about how he met his wife. 
And uh, yeah, on their first date, he brought his brother along and they sort of had a, a code that they set up where his brother cited and he said, if you know, if she's really attractive, you say, oh, the weather is beautiful today. Oh, it's just such a beautiful day. And if she's not, you know, then maybe you say, oh, it looks like rain. And so they go, uh, they go, they knock on the door, she comes out and he's just, his brother starts going on and on. You know, it turns out that she used to be a model um, and he's like, oh man, it's beautiful. And then, and then she says, oh yeah, yeah, the, it's a really lovely summer day. And he's like, no, 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 but just the sun is shining today. Oh, I can't, you know, she's like, is your brother a weatherman? Like what is wrong with him? And then, you know, I think it took him about 10 years of marriage before he told her that story. Um, but I love that story because I think people have trouble understanding not only how a blind person could have access to an idea of visual beauty, but I think they even question why the blind person should care. And to be fair, I think there are blind people who do say, like, I don't need to know. Like, I'm, I, I'm beyond that. But I think more common in my experience of, of talking to dozens and dozens of blind people is that, you know, as with that, they, they, they're like anybody else, right? If everybody in the world is talking about visual beauty, visual attractiveness, visual things, then for them to, to, for them to not have access to that is deeply exclusionary. And it's also not as complicated as it sounds. You know, I think there is a sense in which description, you know, I mean, if you think about it from a literary perspective, right? Like, have you ever appreciated the visual beauty of a character in a novel? I mean, the author has plenty of verbal linguistic ways of convincing you of the visual, physical beauty of people, objects, landscapes, and so on. And I would say that that's maybe one way to understand how blind people might have access also. And it's not that because it's a novel, why would you even care, right? I mean, because I think that's the argument people make about blind people. Well, if it's a painting, if you really want to understand the visuality, read a painting. But no, like you read Henry James, you read James Joyce, you read anyone, Virginia Woolf. I don't know why I'm only stuck in in the old centuries, but you know, uh, every novel, it has lush visual descriptions and and that, that you savor. And so, you know, I think a blind person, too, can can savor those visual descriptions of the, the visual physical world. Approaching this matter of identity and who you're becoming, you quote many different people's comments, but the most wounding one, it turns out, came from a neighbor over dinner who said to your wife, not to you, but he said, it must be difficult to have a husband who's going blind. Mm. You decided on reflection that you hated this guy. And <laughs> yes, had to explain to your son just why. But it touches on so many matters of vulnerability. It was the sense of entitlement that he was entitled to her answer to that question. That it was, it was, it just felt, and I think it was a particularly painful in that moment because Lily and I hadn't figured out how to talk about it ourselves yet. You know, blindness was still something that even though I was using a cane and learning to use a screen reader and, and all the trappings of blindness were present in our lives, you know, had stopped driving. It wasn't something that was easy for us to discuss. And so for suddenly to have this absolute stranger, it was the first time we'd met him, just, just demand that reflection from us. There is a way that, you know, with vision, I can see the way people look at me. And there is this kind of like prurient entitled gaze that mm. is just like ooh what's happening with that guy you know look all the way up and down like the, from the tip of my cane to the top of my head you know and there, and there it's like a it's a leer and and i think the thing that infuriated me about this guy at the barbecue it was a 
a more even more intimate because because it was a sort of trapped social situation version of that leer that I just felt like get you know get your eyes off of me. Mm. Speaking of the gaze, you have a wonderful search through this question of the male gaze and does the male gaze the sort of the mansplaining, um, judging, proving, disapproving guy look mm. uh, survive blindness. What's your verdict? Of course it does. Yeah, I mean it's just like that story with Ron Brown and his and his future wife. There is this very religious sense that I've heard even from blind people who say like, ah, well the temptations of the flesh. I'm immune to them because I don't see. And it's the same thing with with racism that I found where. Uh, you know, when George Floyd was murdered and I was attending these NFB Zoom meetings and there were all these white uh, blind people saying, well, I literally, of course I don't see color. I mean, I literally don't see color. So how could I be racist? Mm. And then black uh, blind people saying, I'll I'll tell you just how <laughs> you can. Like, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of years of oppression aren't erased with with your retinal cells, right? Sometimes it seems to me this whole book is a kind of big chapter in the annals of transition, mm. transitioning of all kinds, including uh, gender mm. and sexuality. In this case, it's vision. And you, you, you draw on the ancient Greek figure of Tiresias, the blind prophet who's been both man and woman, and he's been sighted and blind, and he's a kind of touchstone. But you also write... My own experience of blindness sometimes feels like the beginning of a metamorphosis, a transition analogous to sex or gender, but a profound change in you. I'd love you to take us there. You, you are still fundamentally the same person, even, if, even amid the metamorphosis. Um, and that that's almost paradoxical idea is really central in my experience of becoming blind, because... It is radical. It is it is a fundamental reorientation. We are so visual. I care deeply about visual art and cinema and mm. but beyond that just on the practical level like you know I function visually. I'm a visual reader. I'm a visual navigator. I'm a visual friend, you know, and so it is fundamental, but at the same time like no, I'm still me. I still have the same peccadillos, the same preferences, the same desires and interests and they just have they have kind of fill a different shaped container. And so that's, I think that's what I'm trying to, to, to get at. But Andrew, you also leave us with the impression that there's no, there's no going back. There's no going back to dad who's driving the kids across the country or leading the adventure or even presiding in lots of other ways. You say, to cling to my old sense of masculinity strikes me as a path to disaster. It feels wrenchingly painful to contemplate abandoning those trappings of manhood, fatherhood, whatever. But thinking of blind Tiresias, you write, I'm trying to find a new form that fits me, even if the shape it takes is utterly unlike the one that came before. Yes. We're getting deep here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that idea extends even beyond the idea of masculinity to me, and it just has to do with letting go of sight as this sort of that to me is I've unlocked that's the key to my survival and not just to my survival but to my flourishing as a blind person is to not feel attachment to 
the sighted way of doing things. And I think that's true of being a father. You know, if I only, as I write, sit there thinking about what might have been, then I'm living in the past and I'm living in resentment and I'm living in mm. depression. But if I think, okay, what can I do? Well, there's a bus running every hour during the summer. Let's take a bus to the mall and go see Dungeons and Dragons. And Oscar and I did that the other day and we had a ball. And like, could I, I could have sat there thinking like, well, damn it, why can't I just jump in the car and have the same freedom? But like, honestly, it sounds maybe affected, but like the experience of riding the weird PVTA bus in the Pioneer Valley and like the mm. the folks that we encountered there that we wouldn't have encountered in our climate controlled Toyota, I think well, there was a pleasure. And so th that's an example of embracing this new version of doing things in on a sort of very basic day to day level, but also in a kind of a very deep identity level. There's no resolving an argument about the place of your sight or blindness in your character, in your whole identity. And all sorts of people in your book differ on the matter. Movingly, one woman, one counselor says, it's a blindness is a positive opportunity to have faith in yourself. A woman tells you her blindness is hardly the main character mm. in her life. Another one says, on lots of days, it matters less than the weather. The great James Joyce to the rescue. He's going blind as he wrote Finnegan's Wake. And he wrote a letter to a friend that said, what the eyes bring is nothing. I have a hundred worlds to create. I am losing only one of them. Yeah. And, and you seem to concur in that spirit. I do. I love that quote. <laughs> I mean, it's got <laughs> such man. swagger and bravado to it. <laughs> and of course, and like there, there's a lot to be skeptical of, I think, because this, the eyes don't bring nothing. They bring a tremendous, an entire, you know, visual universe that is endlessly rich. But at the same time, that richness does not blot out the equally infinite richness of the mind, of the other senses, uh, and of human experience beyond vision, which is which is infinite. So yes, I, I I would get a tattoo of that if he had written it in Latin, and I had a desire to have a tattoo. <laughs> Speak of the of the good sighted people. Ray Kurzweil has to be among them, <laughs> who, I'm, I remember Stevie Wonder's album called Talking Book. Yes. And that, was, that was the gift of Ray Kurzweil. Mm. Far out inventor, digital guy, waiting for the moment when we're more techno than bio. He did an extraordinary thing. Ex explain that. And also explain what the searching the technology of, that we could address blindness did for computers in general. I mean, it's, it's, it's a milestone. Absolutely. Yeah, so Kurzweil was a student at MIT with Marvin Minsky, the, the artificial intelligence pioneer, and became interested in the possibilities of machine vision. And this is decades before what we have now with machine vision, with self-driving cars and you know uh, mm. barcode readers. But this is really the, the, not the beginnings of it, but a milestone in that. And he, he, he writes that he didn't quite know what the application of it would be at the time, but was on a plane and sat next to a blind guy and was asking him about what the problems of blindness was. And he found mm. to his surprise that the blind guy said, actually, there's not, you know, the, the biggest problem is really access to, to printed material. Because at the time, if you wanted to read a book, if you were a student, let's say, and somebody assigned Ulysses, you know, you couldn't just go to Audible and download the audiobook. You would you would hire a reader who would sit there with a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder and and make a bespoke audiobook of Ulysses. And so Kurzweil 
basically invents the flatbed scanner and, and he writes that he found the problem that his solution was looking for. And this is the development of OCR, optical character recognition, which is right. the ability of what we now take for granted. You know, Google Books was the sort of first big example of it that I think put it on a lot of people's radar. But the Kurzweil reading machine in the 70s was this commercial dishwasher sized device that for the first time you could take a book, stick it in the machine and very slowly, but surely it would then read the book aloud like a minute later. So mm. we put a page of Ulysses on there and then a minute later, this very, very Soviet robot sounding voice would intone it. And for mm. blind people, it was a revelation. And a few years later, he sells it to Xerox and the Kurzweil reading machine for the blind becomes the Kurzweil data entry machine and LexisNexis. There's a lot of examples of technologies. And that's just, I think that's one of many of of technologies that are created for disabled people or for specifically blind people. The first patents for typewriters in this country were blind writing machines that then burst into the mainstream a few years or decades later. Andrew, you you have a distinguished radio history. You're a podcaster, I'm I'm proud to say. What does podcasting do for you? And what are you trying to do with it? A guy who defines himself professionally by the sound of his voice. You know, it won't be surprising to learn that there are a lot of blind people with really spiffy radio setups in their ho- in their homes, you know, with with mixing boards and all kinds mm. of of gear and gizmos and very nice speakers and audio files to the max. And, you know, I think I would have been that way with or without blindness. But, um, you know, I read this memoir uh, of a, of a blind man in the 1940s with a wonderfully weird title. My eyes have a cold nose, Hector Chevigny. And he was a hugely successful radio writer in the golden age, uh, worked for, for Arch Obeler and, he was successful before he went blind. He had a detached retina that suddenly, like in the middle of his, you know, he was a rock star of that golden age of era, of radio uh, script writing. And um, he wrote about how a lot of the things he learned as a blind person informed what makes a good radio script. For instance, the sort of didactic, there, there's that tendency among sighted people to say, oh, okay, well, um, let's say we're watching a film together and you're a really bad explainer to a blind person. You, know, you might say, ah, okay, so the the bus has come to a stop and the doors just opened. But if you think about what the soundtrack tells you, right? Like we heard that the bus stopped and the doors opened. And so as a radio writer, Chevigny knew already not to explain that and that there's there's a real art to narration, both for a radio audience and for a blind person. And so in some ways it almost feels like an accident, but I feel, I feel a, a, a pretty deep kinship with Chevigny in that way because I've been thinking about the aesthetics of radio f- for far longer than I have about the aesthetics of disability, but they do mm. align in surprising and exciting ways. Andrew Leland, you are, among other things, the, the grandson of Neil Simon, famous playwright, comedian, so to speak. Tell us a joke that's acceptable to blind people. There are a couple that are, um, there are a couple of beauties in your book. <laughs> so a uh, blind guy goes into a department store with his guide dog and he lifts the guide dog up by the tail and starts swinging it around over his head. And the department store clerk rushes up, very concerned, sir, can I help you? And the blind guy says, no, thanks. I'm just looking around. (laughs) Somebody told me, a sighted person told me one the other day that I liked. I've only heard it once. I don't know. I'll try it. You can cut it if it's bad. Um, There's a Passover Seder happening and uh, blind uncle is there and then they're passing the matzah around. 
and the um, uncle takes the matzah out of the basket and, and he, he touches it for a moment and says, who wrote this shit? Uh, I told you that. You told me that. <laughs> and, that's, that's embarrassing. You you're, made you're it acceptable. One. Well, I stole your joke. I knew it was some sided <laughs> guy. It. I forget which one. You improved it. I mean, it's funny because as I've learned Braille, um, there is Braille in the wild in that way, you know? And like, you know, visually, I've, I remember looking at the side of a bus around the time when I first started learning the alphabet and there were these big rivets on it. And I was thinking like, oh, that's odd. It says like JK, JK, JK all along the edge of that bus. Um, so there is, a, there is some truth to that joke, I would say. <laughs> you write midway in the story, Andrew, the world Lily and I build is increasingly a blind one. Describe her part in it. She is an incredibly compassionate person, but also can be pretty tough. Uh, and it's something I love about her is I love her toughness as much as her compassion. And it has not been always an easy process of adjustment for either of us. And and I think one thing I learned along the way that I'm still learning is, you know, it's a cliche to talk about relationships and communication, but I had a lot of difficulty talking about this experience, particularly before I started writing about it, but even after, because writing about it is, is a different experience also. You know, it's, it's turning it into literature rather than getting into the the kind of difficult day-to-day negotiations that every couple has to make. And I felt like I had to, like I was always a couple of steps behind my blindness and figuring out what adjustments both emotional and practical I had to make. And she was necessarily a couple of steps behind me. And navigating that dilation of (laughs) this kind of like foot race that we're both in with it, uh, was has been very challenging at times. Give us a moment. Well, so the the kind of canonical moment in our life together so far was the first time she saw me use the white cane. And mm. it's a good example of the failure of communication on my part because at the time I owned the cane. She knew I owned it. It was a collapsible kind that I just would keep in my bag, particularly if I were traveling. If I got at that point... I really only needed it if I was in a dark and unfamiliar place or in an airport where it was very crowded. But I really didn't talk to her about my sense that I maybe ought to use it more than I did and my anxieties about it and the ways that I felt when people looked at me as soon as I brought it out and the sense of fraudulence, all these complicated feelings I was keeping to myself Mm. and barely conscious of in my own mind. And so we were in New York. We were at a fashionable, which also means extremely dimly lit restaurant Mm. in Brooklyn. And I had to go to the bathroom and I thought, how am I going to find the bathroom in this place? I'm going to knock somebody's, you know, $30 glass of wine over. I better bring the cane out. And as soon as I brought it out, she saw it and had this really visceral reaction and said, kind of in a stage whisper, like, you don't, you don't need that. Um, Put that away. Like, what are you doing? And to me, it just, it was a really painful moment for me Mm. because it felt already so risky to bring it out. And then suddenly to have her disapproval set me back. And the first draft of the book I've related that scene 100% from my own perspective. And she was, you know, quasi villainous, right, in, in my telling of it. And as she read, she read it. And as we t- talked about it, it was a very useful reminder that I hadn't, I hadn't given her a chance to 
to absorb it yet. And it was unfair oh. of me oh. to spring it on her that way without any discussion. And of course she would have that reaction. Like she would have the reaction that I would have had had I been in her position. Just like, what what the hell is that? What are you doing? Like that's for fully blind people, right? Like you look so vulnerable. And and so, you know, she's an English professor. And I think in some ways we would have gotten there anyway, but having a text between us to discuss actually made it a lot easier to have that conversation too, I think. You know, she 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 was able to see it on the page and kind of, you know, and and, and then that had have, that's happened a number of ways. You know, I handed her John Hull's memoir. Uh, he was a British theologian who wrote a really incredible book called Touching the Rock about his experience of becoming mm. blind in middle age, and that also, even though it it spurred some uncomfortable conversations, it it still spurred important conversations, and so that gives you a sense of the dynamic that's unfolded over the course of both my losing vision, but also uh, writing the book. Mm. Thank you, Lily. <laughs> Andrew Leland, it's a joy to see you again. More power to you. I love this book and I love the doors you're opening. Thank you so much. It's something I've imagined is, is this conversation for a long time. So I'm so happy it's happening. You're a beautiful guy, Andrew. I mean, have we stipulated that? I mean, you, You have a wonderful presence. Thank you. I feel the same way about you. (laughs) Andrew Leland's new book is The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. Open Source is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of independent podcasts full of stories about the human condition. This week, listen to our Hub & Spoke sister show, The Lonely Palette. In her new episode, host Tamara Avishai is asking why James Abbott McNeil Whistler's contemporaries in the first Gilded Age found him a moody, combative, basically obnoxious painter. You'll hear and feel why at thelonelypalette.com. And you can browse the whole Hub & Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org. 